0: We are gonna finish out our sermon critique, our good sermon, bad sermon, sermon critique from last week. Pretty good sermon so far, but we'll see how it ends out. Also, we're gonna start reviewing the book, Jesus and the Eyewitness by Richard Bauckham. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. okay so we've got our sermon critique to finish out uh based on our law gospel law and gospel matrix that we laid out last week and then we're going to turn to richard bockham's wonderful book uh, jesus and the eyewitnesses it is an academic book that's why we're going to kind of try to walk through some of it here and and lay some of it out for you uh, to help you bolster your confidence in uh particularly the gospels and the new testament at large but before we get to all that let me thank all those listening on KNNA The Cross in Nebraska. Also thank you to Steve Kozar and The Messed Up Church for having us be a part of things there. Uh, definitely go to uh, messedupchurch.com, themessedupchurch.com. Check out the resources there. Um, if you like what we do here, you're gonna love what they have at the themessedupchurch.com. Uh, gives you access to, to blogs, podcasts, and these sorts of things to help you kind of navigate uh, these waters of uh, North American Christianity. Um, also, thank you to Pirate Christian Radio and Pastor Chris Roseboro. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, we are on the ball here. And we want to remind you, go to laymanstermsradio.org and continue donating to the Kenya Well Project. Um, donations have slowed down a bit because maybe <laughs> uh, maybe we're too excited about the fact that we're pretty close to getting this thing done. Uh, we, we probably need, if we're really to be sure to get it done, another $10,000 that's just that's just the reality uh, but it's it's nice to be so close maybe we can figure out another way to get it done um, in a uh, less expensive way a cheaper way uh, but we still need it to, to, to keep after this thing and and see this thing through uh, we started it I think two years ago let's finish it out please continue to donate to that to ensure that these children who are learning God's word the catechism and are being educated in Kenya um, and being lifted out of poverty there because of that education. If you remember the interviews I did uh, with Monica Ochola, that's that's what she said. Uh, that was the ticket for her father being lifted out of poverty from uh, from a life in Kenya and hers as well. Is, is education is the key. And um, can't emphasize enough that uh, gathering water from you know a spigot outside the school or from local streams and rivers should not be any a part of any child's. Uh, education curriculum. It just simply shouldn't be. And so we want to see this thing through, so please continue to donate. All right, so we're going to finish our, our, uh, our sermon critique, and then we're going to try to tackle uh, Richard Backham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Now, I know we're doing something a little bit new. I thought it worked out pretty well last week, reading the sermon, responding to it, um, and we're going to try to do, this, do the same thing with Baucom's book here, one of, one of my favorite uh, New Testament gospel references cuts against the uh, the popular scholarship, shall we say, of uh, of New Testament uh, historians and, and critics, and uh, talks about how what we have in the Gospels is is from people who actually saw uh, what Jesus did and said and walked with him, or was a close associate of them. And so we're going to kind of try to walk through some of that, distill it down to some some basic ideas. And uh, I think we're going to do that over the next couple of weeks, hopefully, to to kind of give you an idea of what Bachmann's after here, um, and just some some basic principles of uh, of his ideas in this book. Very very good book, challenging book. Uh, it's really written for for uh, the academic classroom, really undergraduate type of stuff, masters type level stuff. But we're in layman's terms. This is what we do. We, we make the the complex simple, and uh, or try to, and that's what we're going to try to do this week. So let's get started with first of all the end of our sermon now um at at this point in the sermon the pastor really makes a turn to the gospel all right and that's fine Uh, and here's how it goes the pastor preaches and yet because there is a sin inside of all because there's sin inside of all of us we never live up to these obligations fully and consistently we are not righteous and god wants us to be righteous and and We're not righteous, as God wants us to be righteous, by our own works. Because sooner or later, our works fail. We fail. All right, so if you remember last week, um, what was going on in this sermon was a very good preaching of the law. We really got all the elements that we're looking for in good um, law preaching, the full extent of the law, the law in all all its fullness, all its sharpness. Uh, that uh, that it, that it's going to do a couple things. First of all, first and foremost, we want it. One is to want it to drive us to repentance. We want it, we want to have the pastor's law pre- preaching drive us to the cross, and um, we want the pastor's law preaching to uh, to instruct us in the law, to teach us about what holy scripture says, uh, how we should behave, and that that's a very important part of the pastor sermon as well and then we also want him to warn us about uh about the punishments and rewards associated with god's law we want him to preach the first second and third use of the law all right um and then we then we wanted and, and he did a great job of that he really did uh, very, very good law preaching uh convicting instructing and warning that's that's exactly what we're looking for and now we have this this turn to the gospel and here here's a problem I have particularly with with Lutheran preaching is we have this kind of this this formulaic law then gospel type of formula uh, you, you know I've even heard people say well you don't want to leave you don't want to end on the law well I don't I don't know about that all that uh, but like we said last week um, good, good preachers will weave all this together. They'll preach law, gospel, law, 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 gospel, gospel, law, gospel. And so uh, th- this makes for much more compelling preaching because it demands of us as, as hearers that we pay attention. It's not just, well, all uh, the pastors preaching the law. Yeah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. I can, you know, I get it. I get it. I'm a sinner. I need the, I need repentance. And so you kind of tune out. When, when a pastor preaches this pattern over and over again but when you have a pastor that kind of mixes this stuff up hes still is preaching law and gospel and there there's no rule I mean even even Walter doesn't doesn't make any any hard and fast rules about this sort of thing we want to preach law and gospel of course you know we don't we, we don't want an all law sermon we don't want an all gospel sermon we want law and gospel that's you know that's that's what we're looking for and so um, so if the if the pastors mixing this up this kind of necessitates that we pay attention so I don't I don't really care for the times when pastors preach formulaically law and gospel now let me hasten to add here um, you can't uh, you can't tell what kind of a pre- uh, preacher a, a pastor is by one sermon you just can't you, uh, you know you may come across a, a wonderful preacher who has a bad sermon once in the end even the you know, my pastor, Pastor Peterson, who generally speaking hits home runs every time, every once in again, he'll, you know, he'll have a sermon where I'm like, kind of like, huh, what happened there? (laughs) Um, you know, uh, you know, did he get too busy this week or whatever? So, so you really have to judge, uh, preaching over, over the long haul. So these are just, these are just, um, snapshots and snippets of, of preaching and, and, um, and, and ways we can evaluate preaching, but but in in on the ground, in reality, we have to evaluate these things over the long term. All right, so um, this pastor's preaching fairly formulaically here. Now, um, I, I've read a couple of his other sermons, uh, and he doesn't seem to do that all the time. He doesn't preach this law then gospel formula. Um, I don't know I don't I don't sit in his congregation Uh, and that's not really the point we just I just randomly picked a written sermon um, from the find a church page on on issues etc and said okay let's let's look at this guy's sermon that's and that's all we're doing so this is just this is just a tool for us to evaluate but anyway the point being good law preaching and then he turns to the Gospels. so um, my first question would be what he says we are not righteous as God wants us to be righteous by our own works because sooner or later our works fail. We fail. All right. I don't mind that, but don't we also succeed? I mean, is that, is that really what he's shooting for here is that, yeah, we, we fail, but, but we also succeed. I don't really necessarily care for that language because it tends to to knock the edge off of your law preaching. Like you, you, he made this, you know, great exposition of God's law. You know, how it punishes, how it rewards, how it convicts and sends us to the cross, how it instructs us. He did a great job of that. But then he turns around and says, but you know what? At the end of the day, we all fail in this. Now that that's how it could be taken. I'm not saying that's what he intended. And I'm not saying that's how everybody's going to take it. Uh, but I think pastors have to be very, very careful when they, when they turn to their gospel preaching, uh, to not shave the sharp edges off, off the law. We, we still need to let that stand. Um, at, you know, other, otherwise, you know, uh, then it's kind of like, oh, well, all that stuff he preached about, you know, obedience and, and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So, so for instance, you know, when the, when the pastor preached, uh, last week something like the son of god came into the world to redeem us from our sinful captivity to this disobedience and to this foolishness he came into this world to reconcile us with our creator to give us new hearts that desire what god desires that loves what god loves that sort of thing Uh, You know, for the grace of God has appeared, he quotes St. Paul, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright, these sorts of things, etc. So when he preaches that way, and then he turns around and says we fail. Sometimes people will say, oh, well, okay, so right, we've got all this law preaching, uh, but we fail at it, so no big deal. We can just keep failing at it. That's one way it can be taken. That's kind of a cynical way to take it, but it can be taken that way. And so we have to be a little bit careful about this. I'd really like to see a transition here. Like, all too often we find ourselves in a cycle of sin, uh, failing to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And I like the word repent. I like it when pastors say, you know, they will they will preach the accusing law of God. They will they will talk about how you know, just like Saint Paul does. You know, we we are we yes we fail in these things and the action is to repent uh th- this uh this kind of uh verbiage really says yes this still stands and if you are failing in this then you need to repent have your sins forgiven and go do better so maybe a better transition here to to his law section might be something like this uh, you know, trying not to offer too much hubris to You know, to writing sermons, but I might say something like this. All too often we find ourselves in a cycle of sin, failing to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and the like. Repent. While the Lord calls us as a Christian to live according to the commands of Holy Scripture and strive to observe them, salvation trains us and we are to exercise self-control. We don't seek sanctification in order that we might be justified before God. And when we fail in our sanctification, we are taught... To turn to the gospel, word and sacrament, to vow to do better, as Luther teaches us in the Small Catechism. All right, so that's one thing that I find a lot in Lutheran preaching. There, there's not clear distinctions made. There's actually, and this is a confusion of long gospel. There are not clear distinctions made between sanctification and justification. And that's that seems to be happening just a little bit here. And I, and I don't think it's it's a, a massive thing. I again. If you guys have been following me for any length of time, you know that I tend to hyper-analyze these things uh, in a lot of ways. But, but, but that can be, you know, given enough, given enough time, you know, this, this sort of thing can kind of crop up where where your people don't know the difference between sanctification and justification. So, so we. we uh, We strive to live as Christians. We we repent. We we train ourselves. You know all all this language of of effort on our part. We uh, sometimes Lutherans don't like to talk about that. Lutherans don't like to talk about discipline and duty. This is this is something that uh, sometimes escapes our vocabulary. But this is certainly biblical stuff. And why do we do this? So we can be saved? Absolutely not. Because because we are saved, we will become sanctified. We begin to love God and neighbor. Um, as we should. That's the idea. So, so we don't discipline ourselves. We don't strive for these things in order to earn something for ourselves. See, what's what? what you know, eternal life, salvation. That's already earned for us and justification. And because of that, this is what I like to say: because we are justified, and we no longer have to obey the commands of holy Scripture in order to please God to gain His favor. That's 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 out of the picture because we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God which the preacher here clearly preaches what are we going to do with all that time we used to used to uh, expend on uh, following the commands of the holy scripture so we could so we can gain God's favor we're going to spend that time genuinely loving our neighbor see because if, if we're trying to earn God's favor eternal favor uh, by our works then we're really not loving our neighbor genuinely are we we are we are doing those things out of, out of a selfish motive because we're trying to we're trying to preserve ourselves because maybe we're trying to make ourselves look better and this sort of thing. I don't need to do that anymore. We're we're done with that. We we are adopted into the family of God, and we are God is eternally pleased with us. Now again, like I said last week, He might be temporarily displeased with us. Like like I say, you know, my son um, has my eternal love and devotion. You know, i but isaac does things that that merit my temporal wrath and displeasure <laughs> but that but that wrath and displeasure is simply te- uh, temporary okay um we ha- we have to look at it this way and and we and we want our preachers to really uh, i do i i find the most compelling and clear and helpful sermons to be the ones who do a nice job of, of making the distinction between sanctification and justification. It's a very, very helpful distinction, and I'm convinced it is a confusion of law and gospel not to make clear that, that distinction. So this is where one place where this sermon lacks, in my opinion. Okay, so let's go on with the sermon. If we are going to be able to stand before God with a clear conscience without fear of judgment, it's going to have to be by some method other than obeying the law. And God has made a way, a way that he reveals through his servant Paul in the epistle to Titus. St. Paul writes, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This, too, is the truth. It is the truth that God invites you to believe when you feel guilty or scared, when you doubt or are afraid, when you yearn for his peace and comfort, when you seek out the meaning of your life as a member of his family and as a citizen of his kingdom. Okay, this is good gospel stuff, good adoption preaching. That's that's one of the things we're looking for in, in gospel preaching. It's so comforting to know that I'm, I'm a son right along with Jesus Jesus is my brother. I'm an adopted son, that's okay though. I'm still just as much of a son. Those of you who adopt children, um, you know, this is this is how it works. Um, and in addition to that, really, you know, I really find comfort in pastors talking about that because they're they're not they don't despise the Lord's temporal discipline, um, and they don't confuse that with with God's eternal condemnation. And again, this is, this is a point of the law of long gospel that that I often confuse. Sometimes sometimes I think. That because I've failed temporally, that I'm that God is going to take away uh, take away my salvation. I, I fear that. Now, again, we we should keep a check on that because we you know this is a danger of uh, of apostasy. We have, that that danger is always looming. So we have to be we have to be cognizant of our of of our behavior and and not despising the Lord's temporal discipline. That's that's key. And we start despising that then we lose repentance. We, 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 have, we begin to have a hardened conscience, and, and that's a problem. So, you know, uh, this, this might be a good place for, for some more law preaching. Now, this pastor has actually done a pretty good job of weaving along gospel together. We were pretty happy about that last week, as I recall. Um, but, but when he talks about guilt and, and, and fear and doubt and these sorts of things, um, sometimes those are brought on uh, of our own actions. And sometimes God will, will discipline us with those things. The Holy Spirit will discipline with, with guilt or fear. And that's okay. Um, we, we should realize that, that God disciplines those he loves. This is what Hebrews uh, 12 says about it. Good, really good sermonette on this idea. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. whom his Father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. By this we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by that. Now, let me talk about feeling guilty and afraid. When, even as Christians, when we do a sin, we should feel guilty and afraid. Right? That that if if we lose that, we we've got a problem, and we want to see our pastors warn us about this. Um, we want to see our pastors talk about discipline uh, uh, from the Lord. This t- this temporal. Uh, discipline right this this makes turning to the gospel all all the more sweet where we can say yes we have we you know, and the pastor's doing this i, I really think he is uh we, we feel guilty and afraid which we should we turn to the gospel the lord lifts us up in the absolution we dust ourselves off and we go back out there we try it again back to the sermon It is the truth that God would want the pastor or minister of every Christian church on the face of the earth to proclaim and to defend as he holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. You have been baptized into the life of Christ and the washing of regeneration. You have been baptized into the righteousness of Christ. The borrowed righteousness, as it were, that covers over your unrighteousness and that justifies you and makes you accept, acceptable in God's sight. You have been baptized into the hope of Christ so that you know through faith in him what your eternal destiny is. That's an important point right there. I, the good distinction, distinct, distinguishing the, this eternal destiny, because that's sometimes what, what gets confusing to me, that um, that my, my temporal sin is, is going to... Uh, Drag me away from from Christ and and an eternal life That's that's what I am I'm afraid of and that's an okay fear to have uh, we, we should be cautious about that because again we, we want to make sure that that we're not hardening hardening our consciences with the gospel the gospel is not there to help us have a hardened conscience in fact we should start having a more sensitive conscience as we become uh, uh, as we grow in sanctification right uh, but but this is this is a good distinction. He's talking about eternity here, not not temporal punishment. Let's see, uh, would be good to see him bring the temporal punishment part in. Uh, that you know, and weave that in throughout his gospel preaching here. But that, that's a good distinction. All right, back to the sermon. The truth is not to be preached only once. It is not to be delivered only once. It is the content of the preaching of God that God wants to be sound sounded forth everywhere and at all times from the lips of all who have been called to be the overseers of his flock, and the stewards of his mysteries. Whenever you slip or fall from the moral standards by which God calls you to live in repentance, you may then heed his other call, his call and invitation to return to your baptism, to be renewed in your baptismal life by the Holy Spirit. In the introduction to his epistle to Titus, St. Paul summarizes the gospel, that he continually proclaims when he writes that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. You, who know the mercy of God in Christ, are God's elect. For the sake of your faith, and for the sake of the daily renewal of your faith, the gospel of our God and Savior Jesus Christ is continually preached to you. In this way, you are preserved in your knowledge of His truth, and in your hope for eternal life. All right, good, pretty good summary. God raising us from death to life, talking about uh, the three aspects of death, which which we which we reviewed in our law and gospel matrix: physical death, etern- physical death. That's that's pretty obvious, right? We're all going to die physically um, as a punishment for sin, but eternal death is is the punishment is the is the eternal punishment for sin, and spiritual death, which is is unbelief. This is all the things that we are uh, rescued from in our salvation, in our baptism, and the, and the pastor does a pretty good job of summarizing this. You know, especially when when you bring in baptism, you really bring in all these aspects of death. Um, you know, Christ suffered physical death. Uh, on the cross this is how, how pastor Peterson likes to put it and I think it's spot on he suffered eternal death the punishment for our sins which is important to point out because sometimes you know we, we've got these folks out there that, that deny uh, this idea that uh, that, that Christ uh, was punished for sin this idea of the, the penal nature of the atonement, this is really what this is talking about. We want to we want to hear our pastors talk about that. If they're not talking about the fact that Christ took the punishment we deserved for our sin, which this pastor does right here, um, they never talk about that. You hear sermon after sermon after sermon. They never talk about how Christ died as uh, you know, taking our punishment for sin. Then you might want to ask your pastor about that. Hey, pastor, you never really preach about you know how Christ took the punishment for our sin. What's you know what's going on with that? You might you know. Hopefully you won't be surprised by the answer, and maybe uh, he'll just say, "Oh, ah, I never really considered that. I didn't realize I was missing that piece so much." Uh, but you might be surprised, and he might, you know, you might have a, a little bit of a debate ensue. Let's just say, um, spiritual death. Christ did not suffer. Uh, that's unbelief. Christ, Christ never uh, experienced that on our behalf, but we we experience that, and the only way that we are brought out of that is by is by the word and sacrament, by the Holy Spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit works. He imparts faith and repentance to us um, and expels our unbelief and that's how, that's how we're uh, saved. Okay, so on with the sermon. Any human teaching that questions, compromises, or rejects this sacred divine teaching must be repudiated in God's name by the bishops and pastors of God's church. If those bishops and pastors are to be faithful to the duties of their office, any teaching that points troubled sinners to their own works for salvation and not to God's baptismal gift of the righteousness of His Son must not be heard or tolerated in God's church. Okay, that's true, but in the same way, any human teaching that questions, compromises, or rejects uh, the teaching that proud sinners turn to the gospel must also be rejected. All right, this is something I see missing quite a bit. Right, we don't we don't want to we don't want to turn. Repentant sinners back in on themselves and just say, "Well, you know, what you need to do is just go obey the commands of holy Scripture better with without absolution." That's true, but at the same time, we we do have to watch out for people who are who will use the gospel as an excuse or as a pass uh, on 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 disobedience. Uh, well, you know, I'll, I'll do this sin and you know, then I'll just go get it absolved from my sin. No, it doesn't work that way, and and I think. You know, I think that way. I think all of us do. I think all of us think, well, you know, I'll just do this sin. You know, God will forgive it and that'll be it. Um, that, that can't, that's not repentance. So pastors have to talk about the flip side of this as well. Again, this is where, you know, you're going to be weaving law and gospel in and out of here. Um, but this this is a point I just don't hear very often in Lutheran preaching, and let you know, unless I'm at Redeemer, <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we've got we've got to have genuine repentance, uh, and we and and we cannot use the gospel as as an excuse for our sin. Well, I'll just go ahead and keep sinning because I know Christ is, has has you know forgiven that sin, has bled and died for that sin. All right, that's that's the problem with this formulaic law than gospel preaching, you know. He's he's in his gospel section here. <laughs> um, laws allowed in the gospel section. That's you know that's that's the idea, um, and, and th- that really would have really put a fine point on his law preaching, if he would have said any human teaching that questions, compromises, or rejects this sacred divine teaching must be repudi- repudiated in God's name by the bishops and pastors. Of the church, if those bishops and pastors are to be faithful to the duties of the office, any teaching that points troubled sinners to their own works for salvation and not to God's baptismal gift of the righteousness of his son must not be heard or tolerated in God's church. Any teaching that points proud sinners to the gospel also must be repudiated. Something like that. See, that would have really brought back the, the sharp edge um, on his preaching. Okay, let's finish the sermon out. Here we go. It is for the sake of his truthful word and the teaching of his word that God has instituted the public ministry of pastoral oversight for his church. It is for the sake of your faith in his word and your justification in Christ by faith that God gives you pastors who remind you of the promises of grace and salvation made before the ages began by God, promises that God who never lies wants you to believe. Titus, whom we commemorate today, was such a minister sent by God? We thank God for Titus's example of faithful servants, and by means of the directions that God gave to Titus in the letter that Paul wrote to him by God's inspiration. God continues to guide and instruct His church as He uses the church as His instrument for raising up new ministries of the gospel in every generate, new ministers of the gospel in every generation. We thank God for His faithfulness in providing for our spiritual needs. May all Thy pastors be faithful, not laboring for themselves but Thee. And may they feed with wholesome food the sheep and lambs brought by bought by Thy blood, tending Thy flock. Oh, may they prove how dearly, they the shepherd love. That which the holy Scripture teach, that and that only may they preach. May they the true foundation lay, build, gold thereon, not wood or hay, and meekly preach in days of strife the sermon of a holy life. Amen okay so pretty much hits every mark for a good law and gospel sermon um it's a good sermon it really is negatives small Yeah, you know, i'd say pretty small critiques some of the verb shaves shave the sharp edges off off the law it, it, you know that's that's you know that's a difficulty of, of it, you know i used to think oh this law and gospel preaching thing is very that's simple so easy and it's really not uh because you you cannot you've got to be very careful not to downplay either one you you can't downplay the gospel with the law and you can't downplay the the law with the gospel that's what that's what you have to be careful of and it's very easy to do and we see even in this good sermon a little bit of that happens that would be my little bit of a critique there all right so there's there's that hopefully that was helpful to you um and now we're gonna turn to to richard bockham's book and this is uh this is it right here Jesus and the Eyewitnesses: The Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony by Richard Bachman. This this is a difficult, um, really uh, a- academic level book. You you probably read something like this in, in a in a theological education um, at a junior and senior level in uh, in graduate school or in a, in a master's program. It's pretty difficult stuff. Um, and so I want to walk through it a little bit. Um, I mean, what's difficult about academic type books is they they use verbiage where a bunch a bunch of concepts are packed into one term, so they don't have to, you know, if you can use one word to to describe a whole, you know, to describe something that would take you a whole paragraph to describe, that's what you want to do, and so they use these words assuming that you understand what's going on, and so I want to walk through this a little bit because this is a very important book. This is uh, this is really and really in the academic community at least. Um, led to to a revival in the trust of the Gospels. This came out a while ago, um, and I really uh, never thought about trying, you know, to, to review a book from, from reading it, you know, on the, on the podcast. But we're going to give it a shot this week, so uh, so let's get to it. All right, so Bauckham gets started right off the bat here. He says, Yet everything changes when historians suspect that these texts may be hiding the real Jesus from us. He's speaking of, speaking of the Gospels here. <clears throat> At best, because they give us the historical Jesus filtered through the spectacles of early Christian faith. At worst, because much of what they tell us is a Jesus constructed by the needs and interests of various groups in the early church. Then that fa- that phrase, the historical Jesus... Comes to mean not the Jesus of the Gospels, but the allegedly real Jesus behind the Gospels. The Jesus the historian must reconstruct by subjecting the Gospels to ruthlessly objective, so it is claimed, scrutiny. Now, this is what uh, guys like Bart Ehrman do. Um, you, you know, many of the quote secular Bible scholars. This is this is what they're doing. this this is one of the phrases of Bart Ehrman. We got we've got to get behind the Gospels In order to understand the historical Jesus. And this is what Bachem is addressing here. It is essential to realize this is not just treating the Gospels as historical evidence, it is the application of a methodological skepticism that must test every aspect of the evidence so that what the historian establishes is not believable because the Gospels tell us it is, but because the historian has independently verified it. All right. So let's kind of unpack that a little bit. This application of methodological skepticism. Okay, first of all, what you have to understand is that um, I mean, this is what I studied at Claremont. When I was at Claremont, I was I w- was trying to get a master's degree in ancient Christian and Near Eastern literature. This is this is what I did. Now, look, you have to understand, and some of you probably do if you listen to this podcast a- at all, that. We have very, very little um, literature from the ancient world the most the 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 greatest uh, number of manuscripts that we have from the ancient world are in fact the bible <laughs> and so um so when you start to uh, get skeptical this this methodological skepticism is is what Bachham calls it when you, when you start to scrutinize what little literature we have um Pretty soon you're, you're going to be left without it. And I would, in fact, argue that if we scrutinized the uh, manuscripts, the evidence we have of say Homer or Plato or anybody, if we scrutinized that at the level that the Gospels, particularly the New Testament, get scrutinized, we we would, yeah, we would ignore those things. It's 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 astonishing how much scrutiny the gospels get in compared to other christian literature and and what Bachem here is arguing is hey look these guys wrote about this they said these things this is what they said about jesus and you you are taking a scientific skepticism and 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 this this scalpel of uh, of of modern thinking and, and you're starting to shave these things away like oh well that that couldn't possibly be historical because it contains a miracle, or that could that probably wasn't was what wasn't what Jesus said, because we think it became came much later, right? So we start to take the scalpel to, to these things, and uh, in order to get behind the gospels, as as Ehrman puts it, uh, to the to the historical Jesus, we don't do this with any other ancient literature. We really don't. We take it as face value. We may raise an eyebrow at it, eyebrow at it, and say, Well, you know, I don't really believe in miracles, but this is what the guy said happened. Um, and so we, we, we should take these things at face value. That, that's really what, what Bacham is arguing for. And then he goes on to say this. The result of such works is ineb- inevitably not one of, of a historical Jesus, but many. Among current historian, historical Jesuses on offer there is the Jesus of Dominic Crossan, the Jesus of Marcus Borg, the Jesus of N.T. Tom Wright, the Jesus of Dale Allison, and the Jesus of, the Jesus of Gerd Deason, and many others. The historian's judgment of the historical value of the Gospels may be minimal, as it, as it is in some of these cases, or maximal, as in other cases. But in all cases, the result is a Jesus reconstructed by the historian, a Jesus attained by the attempt to go back behind the Gospels and, in effect, to provide an alternative to the gospel's construction of Jesus. All right, so that's pretty strong right there because what he's doing is he's taking these, these liberal Bible scholars, um, Crossan, Borg, Wright, Allison, those guys, and he's attributing a motive to them. He's saying those guys don't want the Jesus as described in the gospels. They want a certain kind of Jesus. And so therefore, um, under the guise of, of historical Scrutiny, they are constructing their own Jesus. I remember uh, one of my professors at, at Claremont uh, that was teaching Christian history. At least was honest enough to say that um, the the kind of Jesus's that tend to be constructed are the Jesuses that look like us. Isn't that interesting? Instead of uh, instead of just taking the material we have at value and saying, "Hey, this 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 is the Jesus the Gospels present," and um instead of accepting that instead and you know like we would from most ancient texts saying well you know uh i think this might be might not be true or this might not be whatever you know we start, start taking this 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 skeptical uh scalpel to these things to say that all oh, this was added for this and this was added for that um we just say uh, the best evidence we have is this is what the historical jesus was like this is how people viewed him and um you know instead we, instead these these scholars take the scalpel to the scriptures and say well no jesus really wasn't anything like what uh, described in the scriptures and he said instead he was like he was this kind of person the kind of jesus i would want him to be see um that's 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 the claim that bacham is making now is it altogether true um, is that fair to the other Bible scholars? Would they admit to that? Probably not. They probably wouldn't admit to that. But um, I'm I'm kind of I'm with Bacham on this. I don't you know I'm not the kind of person who always says, well, would my opponent, you know, agree with my assessment uh, of their argument? And I'm, I'm not always for that because people tend to be deceptive. Uh, they they tend to do things you know under the guise of uh, of legitimacy. And you, you, you come to find out they're being—they're being, they're not being le- legitimate at all, or you suspect they are. And it's, and it's okay to call, call people out on this. And I think Borg... I think... Um, Borg. I think Bacham is, is spot on. I think these historians want Jesus to be a certain thing historically, and they're, they're not willing to let the ancient texts tell us who he was. Um, and so that, that's really the whole setup for bacham's book. He continues, This is a very serious problem that here that is obscured by the naive historical positivism that popular media presentations of these matters promote not always innocently strong statement all right okay so historical positivism is is this idea it's it's like logical positivism um <laughs> that that really explains it so so positivism is this idea that we we can get uh we can find truth based on uh in, in, empirical methods of study that um, that we can we can really find out the history uh, based on our methods. That um, what what what's handed down to us from antiquity. And again, keep in mind that that no other uh, document from antiquity is scrutinized in this way. Because if it were, we would you know we wouldn't have much uh, from the ancient world. Um, but with when it comes to the Gospels and the New Testament in particular. Uh, th- th- this this scrutiny takes place, and this this historical positivism. In other words, we can we can through our methods we can figure out who re- Jesus really was. Not what these not what these you know peasant, uneducated, uh, you know barbaric, un you know unscientific um, ancient ancestors of ours had to say about him. We know better. We we can tell you what history really is. Take away all the nonsense that these people added, and show you what really happened. That's that's really the idea of, of historical positivism, um, and, and 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 that um, that what is real is is only what can be proven historically. Right. Those parameters are very very narrow. Um, that's you know. So, so you talk about uh, logical positivism. You know you know what 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 we know can can. It what is true is only that which is obviously logical you know scientific positivism this idea that, that whatever uh, we can prove scientifically that's all we know and that it's the same thing it's a very it's a very uh narrow curtailed way to look at history to say that well this is the only thing that we really know for sure so we have to that's all we can really go with okay um, and on top of that, um, Bacham is saying that people are going with this uh, not because you know they think well this is legitimately you know this is really le- you know legitimately legitimately how we should proceed. They've got motives, and everybody does. I always talk about this. People say, oh, I don't have any, uh, you know, I don't have any preconceived notions, presuppositions, or commitments. And yeah, you know, you, you, you're lying. You do. You have. You have motives. Behind what you're doing, the key is to recognize them. Say, yeah, I have presuppositions, and and, and analyze them, and say, well, do my presuppositions hold water? Um, you know, that's that's really the idea here, and that's and that's what Bachmann's getting after. So he continues. All history, meaning that all historic, meaning all that historians write, all historiography is an inexorable combination of fact and interpretation. The empirically observable and the intuited or constructed meaning in the gospels we have of course unambiguously such a combination and it is this above all that motivates the quest for the jesus one might find if one could leave aside all the meaning that inherit that inheres in each gospel story of jesus one might of course acquire from a skeptical study of the gospels a meager collection of extremely probable but mere facts that would be of very little interest. The Jesus that Jesus was crucified may be indubitable, but in itself is of no more significance than the fact that undoubtedly so were thousands of others of his time. The historical Jesus of any of the scholars of the quest is no mere collection of facts, but a figure of significance. Why? If the enterprise is really about going behind, back behind the evangelists and the early church's interpretation of Jesus, where does a different interpretation come from? It comes not merely from deconstructing the Gospels, but also from reconstructing a Jesus who, as a portrayal of who Jesus really was, can rival the Jesus of the Gospels. We should be under no illusions that however minimal a Jesus results from that quest, such a historical Jesus is no less a construction than the Jesus of each of the Gospels. Historical work by its very nature is always putting two and two together, making five or 12 or 17. That is good stuff. That is strong, right? So what he's saying is that these, uh, these historians are, are, you know, they're, they're, they're doing no better than the Gospels if they're saying well these guys you know put together a Jesus that they liked bawcom's saying yep and you historians are doing the exact same thing <laughs> that's exactly what he's saying all right so so this this is the uh, the bee in the bonnet uh, if you will of, of bawcom this is this is the thing that's that's bedeviling him he's saying okay well fine if you want to say that the gospel writers constructed the Jesus you guys are doing the same thing you guys are constructing Jesus you like so Let's see if we can sort this out. This is really the premise of his whole book. All right, let's continue on with the book. Um, introducing the key category, and this is kind of what I want to go through. I wanted to lay that foundation first of all. I just thought that was an awesome paragraph by Bauckham, very strong, uh, very critical of those studying the historical Jesus and, and kind of what of a, uh, you know, how it's turned out to be a failed effort. All right, but here's here's really what, uh, what he wants to get into. Um, key category one is eyewitness testimony all right I suggest that we need to recover the sense in which the Gospels are testimony this does not mean that they are testimony rather than history it means that the kind of historiography they are is testimony an irreducible feature of testimony as a form of human utterance is that it asks to be trusted so in other words hey this is what I saw and experienced, and um, what what I'm what I'm conveying to you is something that I expect you to, to believe. You know, uh, this is this is my experience. You know, in this day and time, you know, we have we have this thing called lived experience, right? We we trust this imminently, This whole idea of, of lived experience. So, so somebody says, well, you know, my experience has been that that you know, all policemen are racists, and if, and then if I come back and say, well, you know, statistically, da, 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 oh, hey, hey, hey. You, you you should trust my lived experience. You know that's the idea, and we sh- and, and in some ways we should. That person may have had you know really bad experiences with the police. And We should say hey, you know this person. Uh, we ought to listen to them uh, because because at least here's at least one person who's had this experience. Okay, uh, not to say that we can't can't bring data and information to bear on these things, uh, but 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 the idea is test. You know the, the gospel writers. Um, according to Bachem, here wrote because this is what they believe the truth. They weren't they they weren't concocting anything, and that's what often uh, the gospel writers get accused of. Is well, we had the historical Jesus, and then these people came along, and you know, uh, you know, um, mythologized all of this and made Jesus you know this God and and these sorts of things. Um, we just <laughs> unless you have somebody, unless you have somebody saying of the gospels, yeah, you know, we took Jesus and we we did this is what we wanted to do. You don't have any evidence of that. You're you're speculating, and you know, as an historian, you try not to speculate. You take stuff as, as at face value. That's that's kind of that's kind of the two sides of the coin here. Is you know well we can't we can't take this testimony at face value uh, because of certain reasons namely because of miracles and you know the idea that Christ was crucified for humanity on behalf of you know of sinners and and this idea uh, that that, you know the resurrection um, the those sorts of accounts in the Gospels um, you know that's 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 really what's what's at stake here Uh, and so you you know again you take anything else from antiquity we take it at face value hey this is what what they said you know was it true was it not true not sure you know but best of our knowledge this guy's reporting this so we don't have anything contrary to it so we must take it at face value yeah now do the gospels uh, deserve some more scrutiny probably yeah because this is something that you know if you take seriously Uh, Demand something of your life, and that's really I think what's going on here. Okay back to the book This does not mean that it asks to be trusted uncritically But it does mean that testimony should not be treated as credible only to the extent that it can be independent independently verified there can be good reason for trusting or distrusting a witness but these are precisely reasons for trusting or distrusting Trusting testimony is not an irrational act of faith that leaves critical rationality aside. It is, on the contrary, the rationally appropriate way of responding to authentic testimony. Gospels understood as testimony are the entirely appropriate means of access to the historical reality of Jesus. It is true that a powerful trend in the modern development of critical, history, critical historical philosophy and methods find trusting testimony a stumbling block in the way of historians' autonomous access to the truth that he or she can verify independently. But it is also rather neglected, a rather neglected fact that all history, like all knowledge, relies on testimony. In the case of some kinds of historical event, this is especially true, indeed obvious. In the last chapter, we will consider a remarkable modern instance, the Holocaust, where testimony is indispensable for adequate historical access to the events. We need to recognize that, historically speaking, testimony is a unique and a uniquely, uniquely valuable means of access to historical reality. And what Bauckham is saying there is, look... If, if we're going to scrutinize testimony to the point where we've shaved so much off of it that, um, you know, it, it turns into kind of this uh, mundane picture of everything, if we do that to everything, we're going to have a problem. He mentions the Holocaust there. You know, what do we know of the Holocaust? Mostly the testimony of people. We don't have any film. We have some pictures. Uh, but well we have some film some pictures but but we don't have much in the way of that mostly what we have is, is the testimony of the people who were there who experienced it who suffered through it and so um you know that's unless we have and, and, and the other that's again the other thing that bakum is saying is unless we have good reason to discount the testimony um we shouldn't discount it and typically historians tend to do that they like oh well this is this is eyewitness testimony there's probably some truth here, but what we got to figure out is, you know, what, what the nugget of truth is here is, and, and throw the rest away. And they do that kind of just based on their own method methodological scrutiny. You know, did kind of like Bacham said in the outset this this methodolo- methodological skepticism. That's exactly what it is. Okay, that's 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 what he's laying out here. Okay, uh, here we go. Now we're getting into stuff. Names in the Gospel. Oops, I think I missed a part I was wanting to do. Uh, ah, here we go. Oh, yeah. Before we get to names in the gospel, I want to uh, talk about Papias and the eyewitnesses, uh, which is very important, as Bakken points out here. Uh, this uh, The passage is from the prologue to Papias' work. Like Luke's gospel, Papias' Papias's work was dedicated to a named individual, though the name has not survived. And in the prologue, uh, and in the prologue addressed this... Uh, dedicatee directly I shall not hesitate to put in proper order form for you everything I learned carefully in the past from elders and noted down well for the truth of which I vouch for unlike most people I did not enjoy those who have a great deal to say but those who teach the truth nor did I enjoy those who recall someone else's commandments but those who remember the commandments given by the Lord to the faith and proceeding from the truth itself. And if by chance anyone who had been in attendance on the elders come my way, I inquire about the words of the elders. That is, what according to the elders, Andrew or Peter said, or Philip or Thomas or James or John, or Matthew, or any other of the Lord's disciples, and whatever Aristion and the Elder John, the Lord's disciples, were saying. For I did not think that information from books would profit me as much as information from living, from a living and surviving voice. Bacham continues, In order to understand this passage correctly, we must first sort out the four categories of people Papias' mentions. One, those who had been in attendance on the elders, i.e. people who had been present at their teaching. Two, the elders themselves. Three, the Lord's disciples, consisting of Andrew, Peter, Philip, Thomas, James, John, Matthew, and others. Aristion and John, the elder, who are also called the Lord's disciples. Okay, so really this is where we see the building of the Gospels, where we see this testimony of Papias talking about how these Gospels were built. They weren't just looking for somebody... Who were, who were telling tales about Jesus they were looking for somebody who had first-hand knowledge or were a close associate of somebody who had first-hand knowledge of the events that's really that's where the evidence points us but instead what do historians do like yeah I don't yeah ignore Papias they weren't really looking for that they were just concocting something and so we got we got to get through the concoction and get to the to the real thing all right that's 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 uh, that's Bauckham's, you know first real, Evidential retort to those who would uh, who would use this methodological skepticism to, to analyze the veracity of the Gospels and, and whether or not they per- portray to us an historical Jesus. All right. Uh, Papias says, no, that's not what we're doing here. We are trying to write down eyewitness testimony. Yeah. Okay. Got to quit for this week. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you to all of you on, on KNA, The Cross of Nebraska, Steve Kozar, and the MessedUpChurch.com. Pirate Christian Radio. Please do not forget to continue donating to the Kenyan Oil Project and we'll see you next week.